WAER Sports proudly presents the Ostrom Avenue Podcast. And Syracuse has knocked off NC State 24-9. The students rush the field. The Orange are bowl eligible in 6-0 for just the third time in the last 87 years. Syracuse stops out the Spiders. It took overtime to do so, but the Orange claim the first semifinal of the Empire Classic 74 to 71. Breaking down the orange every week. Syracuse's defense dropped by 20 spots on Ken Palm last night. So that was really embarrassing. I think Malik Brown should be getting more minutes. He shows the energy. I think he brought energy when he came to the floor. And talking with the industry's experts. We're joined by a very special guest and a friend of the podcast, Brent Axe. We now have the pleasure of being joined by David Thompson from the USA Today Network. We're joined by a very special guest. It's former SU men's lacrosse star and current ESPN analyst, Paul Carcaterra. It's the Ostrom Avenue podcast from WAER. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Ostrom Avenue podcast. My name is Ethan Frank, recording this Tuesday, December 19th, late afternoon. And as always, we're brought to you by Empire Hearing and Audiology. We thank them very much for their continued support of the show. Joined by Mr. Jordan Leonard. Jordan, how are you? I'm doing good. I just finished up my semester. So I had my last final walking through the three inches of snow and just totally ready to go down to South Florida. And I was already talking to my dad. It's it's 75 degrees down there. I cannot wait to get down there. And that is why he has his Delray Beach trucker hat on today. Also joined by Mr. Hudson Ridley. Hudson, how are you? I'm pretty good, Ethan. Back here in the sunny Denver, Colorado. Already gotten more sun in the last two days that I've been here than uh, <laughs> probably the last month in Syracuse. So it's uh, it's helping a little bit here. Yeah. Well, what's the temp? What's the temp in the, in the mountain I think we're time zone? Around forty three today. Not bad. That's not, not bad. too bad. And if you're watching this on uh, on YouTube, you'll know who who the fourth member of the team is today. Uh, but if you're listening to this audio only, uh, this is a big reveal. It's his first time back on the show. Uh, in nearly two years, Mr. Ben Shulman. Ben, how are you? I'm doing well. It's it's great to be back. I'm uh, in an even colder and potentially snowier place than Syracuse. I did not uh, end up getting anywhere warmer after school, but uh, great to be back and uh, just like amazed at where the podcast has gone from here. I mean, the fact that there was a sponsorship read coming into this podcast after the, the cold emails that I sent Manscaped and, and other companies <laughs> trying to get them to just send some free product. I will take that. Uh, that that's awesome and great to be on with you guys. We thank uh, Jennifer Weeks Oseda over at, uh, at WER for, for helping us get the sponsorship of the show. And that was the first thing that Johnny remarked on, on his episode when, uh, as this is the second of our, uh, you know, bringing the alums of the pod back on the show. That was the first thing he said as well. So Ben, Give a let's give the Ostrom audience an update. Uh, it's as I said, it's been almost you know two years. Let's say let's call it eighteen months or so uh, yeah. since you departed Syracuse. What have you been up to? Yeah, so we rewind back to the only below five hundred season in Jim Beheim's career, and that's kind of where I left off. Uh, and then uh, got to do some baseball in the minor leagues after that uh, with the Fort Wayne Tin Caps in Indiana. They're an affiliate of the Padres, and then got to do some work back in basketball with. Uh, Raptors 905 actually Demetrius Nichols was an assistant coach for us last year so that was really cool um, and and I've worked with them the last couple seasons and then during my minor league baseball stretch and last summer I've done some fill-in work on the radio for the Blue Jays as well in Toronto where I'm from uh, doing a you know like 
25, 30 games last year and some some talk show stuff, getting, getting to use my Ostrom experience a little bit more than I thought I would uh, coming out of school, but getting to do some pre and post game shows and my my dot experience, I guess, as well uh, with some callers uh, calling in. But no one beats no one beats the Syracuse callers. I got to say they'll prepare you for anything. But yeah, it's just been, uh, you know, doing uh, mostly baseball and basketball. I did a little bit of football as well. Uh, I got to do like some FCS work, uh, you know, on, on some ESPN plus games and really see where the, the most, uh, I'll say hardcore instead of degenerate gamblers are in the games that really didn't matter. And people were tweeting at me about stuff, but uh, it's, it's been fun since leaving. I've, uh, I've had a good time and I even got to, to go back and call a game at Syracuse last year, a women's game. So that was, that was a lot of fun. I remember that because I was also calling that game and I got to stare at the back of your oh, head yeah. for, for the, for the entire <laughs> game. So, so that was a lot of fun. Um, glad to hear everything's going well. You know, we're always happy when, uh, when the alums of the pod make us look good because then be like, Oh, then, you know, in a few years, these guys that are talking on this show, oh, they're doing, they're off, they're off doing big things. So bringing it back to Syracuse, uh, I can say for certain that this team has played 11 games this year. I know you've watched three of them because we were in the yes. same arena that, uh, you know, you were at the Maui invitational, uh, where I was as well. And you got to see those three games with their own eyes. How much have you been able to, you know, watch the team, uh, since you left Syracuse? Well, I'll be honest. I boycotted the Chaminade game because I wasn't interested. Uh, I did. I, yeah, I was I'm there sorry, too. Hey, correct. Yeah, too. I was there with my girlfriend. I did not want to subject her to a million games uh, during that tournament. So I, I promised that if Syracuse played Chaminade, we'd skip that. Right. You went to the title game. Right. You went to the title game. Okay. Yeah. Uh, but still, I, I've gotten to watch like over half the games. Uh, you know, there's. A lot of the games conflict with the games that I'm doing. Uh, you know, the schedules aren't so incredibly different from the G League to college, although there's a, a couple more G League games. But I've still got to pop in here and there, or, you know, if I'm in the car when the game's going on, I'll, you know, throw on WAER.org, because in Canada we don't get uh, 88.3. But uh, I can throw uh, throw it on on my phone or something like that. So I've I've gotten to watch it a good amount of it, certainly more than, than football, to be honest. I was right when they started losing in football. I kind of backed out of there, but uh, it's been uh, it's been fun to watch over the last couple of years, especially with how frustrating the end of my uh, senior year season was a couple of years ago to be like a little less attached from the team and just uh, get to be a little bit more, you know, uh, optimistic, I think has been, has been pretty nice. So I I've probably seen six or seven of the games. And, and what are your takes on, on Adrian Autry and this team? I mean, I, I think the first thing is like, I like, the makeup of the roster and, you know, in, in terms of the athleticism, it feels like uh, this is a much more athletic team than they have been in the past couple of years. I, I think it's, imp I, I think it's been a good start for red so far. You know, they lost those two games uh, in, in, Honolulu not at the Maui Invitational in Honolulu against two really really good basketball teams as much as um you know they ended up being lopsided scores especially on day one they really looked like they could take down Tennessee so um I, I think that for the most part the teams played pretty well I, I think they're you know the main concern I still have is kind of with the long-range shooting I know Judah has shot it well this year from three uh, if he can keep that going then then a lot of that issue is solved but I thought JJ would shoot it probably a little bit better from three than he has so far and then I, I you know I, I just worry about uh Chris Bell needing to to essentially hit like four threes uh in most games if they're gonna win like I if they could spread it around a little bit more uh, you know, and maybe get a, a little bit more out of Taylor and, and 
uh, you know, I don't know if you play Kyle Cuffmore or just hope that a couple more of them go down because he's not shooting a bad percentage. But uh, I think if they could shoot it a little bit better from three, that would be nice. But the defense, I thought, looked pretty good. Uh, the the win that you were just at, Diesel, in North Dakota, I mean, that's that's a big South win. Dakota. I, I, South Dakota. South Dakota. And I brought Pardon the proof me. back. I got, I got yes. this hat just to prove it. I, and that's that's shameful of me because I feel like states like that are almost Canadian. So I should probably <laughs> I should probably have them on my radar. But uh, South Dakota, I, I think that's a big win. You know, Oregon's not not the greatest team in the country, but that's a good basketball team. And they really made their mark. So uh, I'm excited about what Red's brought so far. I think it's been interesting and uh, I, I'm looking forward to, you know, them being on the bubble once again, because I'm sure that's what they'll, they'll be a couple weeks I, from now. I think I think so, too. I want to go back to the thing you talked about with shooting because and specifically specifically talking about JJ because I, I think you know from what I've heard is like he he suffered this shoulder injury last year and that like has kind of proven to like still be affecting the way he shoots and how he shoots but it felt like that Georgetown game uh, I guess what was it you know 10 days ago at this point jo Jordan that you were at was kind of this breakout for him to start to show oh this guy can be a consistent shooter yeah at Georgetown is where he kind of hit his first three. I mean, he technically had one three before that, but I mean, that was one glorious, you know, three pointer that we had seen him actually make. And I think that's the confidence is just kind of what he needed in Georgetown. And they were just more in rhythm threes. I think the, the ones that he were take was taking before were kind of like either him kind of off the dribbler or, or different stuff like that. The ones in Georgetown that he hit were like off a pass from Judah Mintz or just something that he can, can get in rhythm because of that shoulder injury. It's, his three-point shot's not the prettiest. It's kind of like a Alonzo ball where he kind of like moves the ball to his left and then goes up. So I think when he's in rhythm and catching it and like a catch-and-shoot three, that's where he's going to make his money. He kind of did that a little bit against Oregon as well. And, and like Ben said, if, if J.J. can start shooting better, if Judah can shoot the same percentage, that's going to really solve kind of the, the shooting issues that this team has. Because if you look at the roster, other than, you know, Justin Taylor hasn't shot the ball that well too, but Justin Taylor and Chris Ball, the only spot up three point shooters on the team. So the, the spacing is a little bit weird because you go from uh, Joe Girard and a buddy Bayheim in previous years that have been able to space the floor just naturally because they can knock down from anywhere. Um, so if, if JJ and Judah can continue to kind of progress and shoot the ball better that's going to add that dynamic to the team which is going to make them even more lethal than maybe we saw them in the Oregon game I think Georgetown or JJ rather going five for six over the last two games also kind of creates a couple more questions even than answers because beforehand we started to kind of feel like oh well okay he's just not a shooter this shoulder is kind of throwing him off to the point where he has to be a different kind of player than we thought he would be now five for six over the last two games we don't really know where his spot is again. And it kind of switches around. So him, if he finds a consistent shot, then we'll kind of get a good feeling of where JJ Starling really fits into this team. But for now, even though it's a great thing that he's hitting these threes and that confidence level goes back up instead of people on social media, completely writing him off and doubting him and saying, Oh, he can't keep shooting threes. I know Jordan and I, a few weeks ago said, you got to, put the complete kibosh huh. huh. yeah. Well, yeah okay okay, okay. We're, okay. this be is fair. not saying malik brown should start shooting threes we're on two ends of the arc here but i will say it, it creates a couple more questions now uh than answers so it's it's interesting to see him get this form back whether or not he can continue this it, it this is just a two-game sample size we got to 
continue to see this before we say, okay, he's back. He can start shooting. But for now, obviously, it's it's a pretty promising sign. Yeah, to, to, to be fair, I want to qualify for a second, then I'll yield to someone else. When I said that, I meant if he's continuing to miss them, you cannot keep taking them to take like four or five per game. Now that he's made a couple at the beginning of games, that's when you can start shooting them more. And I'll yield my time to someone else. <laughs> well, ahead, I think, ben. Jordan, you, you made the point about the threes he's taking. I think that's the big part of it. I, I, I still don't think that he's shot well enough, even over the last couple of games, to, to ask him to take a bunch of off the dribble threes. Like, I just don't think that makes sense because he's a good driver as well. He doesn't have to. I, I think it's about, you know, just getting into space and shooting open threes and making a good percentage of them. They, they, you know, they would love to have him forcing up a bunch of threes and hitting a bunch of them. That's just not the realistic situation here. And, and they have, you know, at least in Chris Bell and, and Judah this year, two guys that look like they can, you know, take a lot of threes when needed, but they do need to correct that spacing because they're also not, you know, without a big threat inside, guys can close out a little bit harder to the three-point line than they usually would. So I, I think that, you know, if they can just get a little bit more uh, heat on him defensively, get guys sprinting out to JJ a little bit more uh, as a result of him making some threes, it helps everyone out. It'll get JJ a couple more layups and the offense will run better because of it. Yeah, shooting is definitely the big concern on on this team right now. I mean, just going through the percentages, Judah is shooting forty, uh, a little over 41% on 34 attempts, which is not very big of a sample size. Uh, and JJ's taken 30. He's shooting under 27%. So, like, that kind of, like, it could go either way. Judah was hot for a couple games, uh, like against Cornell and, and like, against George, or I don't know if it was a George, a different game. Um, but it was definitely against Cornell that he was hot. Um, and if you're hot one game, then it can dramatically affect your percentage. Like Chris Bell, 77 threes is a pretty strong sample size. Okay, this guy's a 30, between a 35 and 40% three-point shooter, and and that is where you're at. I think the problem with Justin Taylor is, you know, compared to Chris Bell, his release and his motion is a lot slower. Chris Bell has a really quick release and will not hesitate to get a shot up uh, no matter how close his defender is to him. So I think that that affects Taylor in a way because he's only taken 54 threes compared to Bell's 77 even though Taylor's play averaging, you know, nearly two minutes more per game, I guess it just kind of depends on role. You mentioned size, Ben, uh, Naheem McLeod. He's quite tall, uh, you know, standing next to him watching, you know, the Syracuse locker room, the, uh, the tunnel on Sunday was lined with fans, uh, as right as they came out of the locker room, watching Naheem McLeod take pictures with, with like 10 year old kids who are like not even up to his waist was, was, was really, really funny. Um, you saw, you know, kind of the blossoming of Jesse Edwards towards the end of, of your time in Syracuse. Now it's the Naheem McLeod is playing 15 or so minutes a game and Malik Brown is up over 20. What do you make of this, this big man combination? I mean, there's, you know, there's some some good athleticism in it, I think. Uh, you know, there's been some obvious uh, or athleticism in Brown. There's been some obvious concern, I think, uh, with what's going on, you know, uh, offensively with the bigs. Like, I, I don't think you're getting a lot out of Naheem McLeod. Should that have been expected? I think that's an argument. But you, you don't have guys who can really create a ton for themselves. And that's where they were, I think, for the majority of the time that I was at Syracuse until Jesse had that breakout, which happened in, uh, in the Bahamas really uh, in the, in the 21, 22 season. So I, you know, the, the difference there was all of a sudden you could throw the ball down to Jesse 
and he could do something himself. He could throw a post move on and get by a guy. It wasn't, you know, he wasn't doing anything crazy. There were no dream shakes, but he was able to create some some opportunities for himself and just controlled the ball a bit better. I, I don't know that you really have much of that this season with, you know, a guy that's going to make some solid passes out of there, a guy that can make some moves and really control the ball for a long period of time. McLeod defensively obviously is a pretty, is a pretty, you know, frightening presence. And I do like that considering this team has struggled to rebound for a long, long time. It's nice to have someone big there. Although sometimes, you know, definitely in uh, Hawaii, he was getting out rebounded a, a couple of times by guys smaller than him. But I, I think overall, I, I, I like the bigs. Like, I don't mind them. Uh, I don't think, you know, it's nearly what they had with Jesse. I think it's probably better than, than what they had when no offense, like a Sidibe was running uh, the majority of, of the plays up at, at center. So it, it's solid. Uh, you know, I, I, they don't run a lot of their offense through there, but I do like what they get defensively from both. And Malik Brown can, uh, can throw some huge dunks down too, which is fun. Yeah. I think I agree with Ben. It's like a net neutral. They don't, they don't detain, they don't, take away from the team that much. They don't really add too much on the offensive side. Um, I honestly, one, I'm not making this argument. One can make the argument Munir Hima might have the, the best post move on the team in terms of actually backing down a defender and going to because I, I would Nahima actually, not I, would, I would argue Quadir Copeland has the best footwork on okay, the team. No, okay, I'm talking about bigs. I'm talking about bigs. Here comes Ethan bringing Quadir up. We don't need to talk about Quadir just yet, but I'm talking, about, I'm talking just bigs. In terms of the actually the Justin Taylor point too, I think he just hasn't gotten too many quality three-pointers, partly because they're playing him at the four. I mean, the guys who are guarding him at the four are going to guard him differently than maybe guys are going to guard him at the three. If he's playing the three, he might be the same height. Uh, meanwhile, if he's playing the four, guys might be a little bit taller than him. So I think that's also what impacts the front court as well. There's just not that much depth. When you're not playing Munir Hima at all, you have Naheem McLeod and Malik Brown, and they both don't bring – too much, you know, post-up moves like Ben said, like how Jesse Edwards, you can you can feed the post, isolate him on one side. He can back a guy down and get to the rim. You don't really have that on this team. And it doesn't matter or it hasn't mattered as much because of how good the guards are at driving. Judah Mintz and J.J. Starling getting to the cup. I mean, if Judah Mintz or J.J. Starling or both weren't on this team, this team would be horrible on offense because you don't have, you know, amazing shooters. You don't have amazing offense in the front court. You're really led by these guards who create for everyone else. Um, but just overall, I mean, the front court, it, it doesn't really add too much. It's overall just a net neutral. I like the point that both of you guys made about net neutral, though, because I, I do feel like it's a net neutral, but I feel like it's a bit of a math equation, net neutral. You have, let's say, Malik Brown's adding five. Well, Naheem McLeod, Naheem McLeod is subtracting five, and they end up at zero either way. I think overall... Benny Williams, excuse me, not Benny Williams, Malik Brown. Malik Brown has shown things in the past few weeks that have been fantastic signs going forward. Obviously, he's a little undersized. He's skinny for six foot eight or six foot nine, where you have him listed. But again, this week off the bench, good production. He had 13 points, four steals. I think that's where he really kind of comes into his own as a big man who can get steals. He knows his role a lot. Naheem McLeod, I feel like, also knows his role when it comes back to knowing your role on the team. Naheem McLeod knows it. He's just not able at this point to execute that. He doesn't have that switch in his brain where he can flip it on and say, I'm seven foot four. I'm going to dominate guys that are a lot smaller than me. I'm going to chase after rebounds. I'm going to be aggressive in the paint. He doesn't have that yet. And for that reason, I feel like he's just been subtracting from the team a little bit, even in his better games. 
he just kind of feels to subtract from the team a little bit or not add really anything at all. Whereas Malik Brown has been adding significantly to the team consistently, whether or not it's whether it's scoring zero points against Cornell, but getting 12 rebounds, seven of them offensive, or having an offensive output like he did the other day with 13 uh, points, but only two rebounds. He adds a lot to the team where I feel like Naheem McLeod subtracts. So you're right. It's a net neutral, but it's a math equation net neutral. I, I got some math for you. I got some numbers on one of my favorite you know, analytical sites that I like to mention. Um, Ken Palm Bart- or Bart Torvik? Nope, I'm on Bart Torvik right now okay. uh, because I don't pay for Ken Palm. Um, and you know, <laughs> he, he does the play, these player stats. And I think even more interesting than analyzing, you know, how many minutes per game Brown and McLeod are playing is the mid- percentage of minutes they played this season. So Malik Brown has played only 56 and a half percent of Syracuse's minutes, which I think is interesting. Compare that to Naheem McLeod, who's down at 38%. Um, Munir Hemo's only played in six games. So he's, or no, six games, two games. So he's all the way down at, uh, at 3%. But I will say, each player has like an efficiency rating, like based on how good they are. And uh, Judamins is first by a pretty wide margin, but second, third, and fourth is Brown, Hema, McLeod in that order, which I think is pretty surprising uh, considering what we've seen from McLeod uh, offensively, especially, but even, you know, in pick and roll defense sometimes. So whoever wants, the take, whoever wants to take that, go ahead. What is the efficient? Does it say the efficient, what the efficiency number includes? It's, it's kind of, it's, I don't even, it's like the special, no, it's like a, it's, I don't know what the, it like what it stands like PRPG. I think it's like player rating per player rating per player PR, PRPG and Judah's at five. And then Malik Brown's next close at 2.8 um, oh. for, for reference. Kyle Cuff is last on the team uh, with <laughs> whose play minutes at negative 0.5. I feel like if you take it at that angle, though, it kind of seems like where you're scoring your points also seems to affect that a little bit because Hema, McLeod, Brown, and even Judah are scoring near the rim. Kyle Cuff is scoring from way deep. It's like the shot percentage thing. If you're a big man, you're supposed to have a shot percentage higher than if you're a small guy or a guard. So I think that might play a big factor into that in, in terms of yeah. – Because, yeah, McLeod wouldn't have that high of an efficiency rating, we think. Yeah, I mean, PER in the NBA definitely factors field goal percentage in probably more than it should. And and I do wonder how much. I mean, Malik Brown should absolutely get credit for the fact that he's 73% from the floor. Like, that's still really impressive for a big. Um, and But McLeod, you know, at 63, and then you get uh, Hema, who has taken two shots and hit them both this year. Uh, and, <laughs> and you do end up, I think, getting some of that skewed. But, you know, definitely they both provide a lot of defensive value in different ways with the steals, I think, coming from Brown and McLeod, uh, you know, definitely has the ability to alter a lot of shots. I do wonder how soon or uh, correct me if you've done it already, but Malik Brown's playing more. He's been more productive. Should he not just start games? We have have talked about this. We have talked about this. What's what's the deal there? I I think it's like they love establishing like they love getting McLeod a post touch on the first or second possession, or at least trying to so old school. It's so old school. Uh, <laughs> they do it it's, every game. It's, I mean, it's like Autry, it's clear. He's taken some things from Beheim and, and put in some things of his own. And one of the things he's definitely taken from Beheim is getting the big man a touch on the first or second possession. Um, because like, it's like, if he can get him going, like Nahima, like against Oregon, Oregon was very depleted, had I think only seven or eight scholarship players. Their top two big men, both injured in Folly Dante and, and Nate Biddle. Um, and McLeod had seven rebounds in the first half. 
which was, I think, his mo- maybe his most in a game this season. He had only been averaging around four and a half per game. Um, but, like, he was he was active, very active down low over the first few minutes, especially of that Oregon game. So I think it's like, oh, if, if we can get Naheem a touch and he could, you know, happens to make this layup or, you know, the defense has a lapse and he gets a dunk or a layup or something, um, or he can get to the free throw line like he did against Oregon, then I think that's where that comes in. Because if Naheem can get going and get in some sort of offensive rhythm, then that's a huge asset, I think, is is the yeah. rationale. Well, to 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 clarify, he did have nine rebounds against Chaminade. Oh, oh great, yeah. great oh, yeah. Chaminade team right there. Hasn't reached um, I, the I 10 think, mark yet. Yeah. I, I, I think it's more of the fact they just like the energy that when you sub in Malik and Cordier off the bench, they can give a jolt, um, even if like they start slow, kind of like the, what they did against Oregon where they started slow. They in, injected um, Malik, Cordier, and, and, event, and eventually Kyle Coffey gave them the jolt needed. Um, so I think that's kind of how it plays into it, where maybe you don't need Malik to start, but he's playing the minutes down the stretch too. So that's kind of like – if he doesn't start, it's not the end of the world because he knows he's going to play down the stretch. And him, him and Quetier bring that energy, especially um, a couple of minutes into the game where you're you're finding a rhythm. And, oh, now you got to contend with Malik Brown, who's a center that steals the ball two times per game. It's also an intimidation thing, for sure. We talked about it a few weeks ago where, you know, Naheem McLeod, they're getting him a post-touch, but his real big thing is just to win the tip. And he's not always and doing block shot and block and deter shots at the rim. Like I was, you know, well, I was no, talking. No, no. I, I was like talking to start the, the game at the I, very yeah, beginning. yeah. You're right. You're right. Sorry, I didn't mean. I didn't mean to cut you off. But like, but I, was talking, want I, the I agree with you though. That's his. That's his main role right now is to deter shots at the rim. That's what he's proven that he's good at so far. He hasn't proven that he can be a rebounder. He hasn't proven that he can be a scoring threat. I mean, you saw in the first half, even though he was rebounding well, countless times at the rim. Blown layup. He gets his yeah. own rebound, blows the layup. Gets his own rebound again, gets fouled, hits one out of two. Like yeah. that, that has become kind of the MO for Naheem McLeod on the offensive end. He has proven he can block shots, but other than that, the reason he's starting the game is to have that intimidation of the fact that he's seven foot four and to have him out there to win the tip. Other than that, you'll get him a post touch, he'll miss the layup, and then Malik Brown will come in shortly after. That's kind of the Naheem McLeod base plan right now. And I, I get, I think like of all the, of all the reasons to keep him in the starting lineup, I do get the idea of, we have a couple guys on the bench that we bring off the bench as a unit together and it changes the game up and, and it doesn't matter as much about who starts the game or about who finishes the game. So I, I could see that, I guess, you know, like I would worry about putting too much stock in like, you know, give him this post touch. We might get Naheem going. He scored double digits once this year. It was Shamanad, you know, like he's just not, he's not a guy who's going to go out there and score, you know, 17 or 18 points, really. Like it's just, it might happen once this year, frankly, that's what it looks like. And uh, we had mentioned Jesse earlier, and that was a, I think an extremely rare case where a guy who looked like he had no touch and no finish one day woke up one day and just had it all and it and it everything clicked for him in some way and I don't exactly know why or how but it really worked for him I lean that most guys like in year three of their college basketball career if their touch hasn't improved that much I I happened to see Naheem when he was with Florida State play against Syracuse a couple years ago it didn't look wildly different to what's going on right now I'm not saying that he hasn't improved at all but offensively it's not much different I, I don't know if there's if there's that much you can ask for him. Like I, I'm okay with with starting him. Um 
but not that my word has any authority. But <laughs> I'm okay with starting him. But I, I do wonder, like, how much do you even need to give this guy the ball? You know, like, right. just what, what's the point? Uh, you know, he'll you'll run some pick and rolls, and if you can get him the ball above the rim, do it. But outside of that, like, I, I don't see the point of running a play for him unless something drastically changes in practice. And then they realize probably like they did with Jesse that all of a sudden this guy's taking a huge leap and we need to start giving him the ball a lot more than before. And it's, 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 he can only play in four or five minute spurts anyway, just because of how yeah. big he is. And on, you know, on defense, I think that it's a whole team issue, but especially when he is on the floor, if you put him in the pick and roll, it's not good um, because either he has to drop and then that leaves, you know, potentially a shooter open or it's you know, he he steps up and then the help defense usually isn't isn't there in time. And that's been, you know, for a Syracuse defense that is definitely improving and is nearing top 50 and defensive efficiency on Ken Palm. I'd say pick and roll defense is definitely something they're still working on. I want to get your opinion, Ben, uh, and talk about, you know, someone with uh, with your same namesake. Uh, but he goes by Benny because I think you have a, neat, a unique perspective on Benny. I believe uh, he, Benny, a former guest of the Ostrom Avenue podcast. Benny was a guest of the Ostrom Avenue so, podcast. So you, he was here, you were here for his freshman year. And when he was being recruited, when he committed all the hype around, around that. And now Benny Williams is at best the eighth guy in this rotation, which is, you know, pretty weird to think about. Um, for example, like I was talking to, uh, to Mike Waters, uh, friend of the show at halftime on Sunday. And I said, Mike, if I told you that Syracuse was up by eight at halftime and the two leading scorers were Benny Williams and Kyle Cuff, what would you have said? And he <laughs> said, he said, what are you smoking? So it, it, it's like, that's kind of, that's where we're at with, with Benny Williams right now. What, what was his, I guess, what was Benny like when you talked to him before he committed? Because he was one of the first players out of the locker room yesterday. And uh, we were standing right there with Pete Moore waiting to talk to players. And uh, we were like, um, I think, you know, Pete was like, Benny, there's some media over here. And Benny's like, do I have to? Pete's like, no, you don't have to. And Benny just walked right to the bus. And that's kind of, it's kind of where we're at. Um, so what, what is your whole perspective on this, on the, on Benny? Yeah, what a what a wild change from what it was like. I will say a, a couple of years ago. I obviously, you know, I didn't know him that well, but we did spend, uh, you know, what whatever thirty minutes, uh, maybe forty minutes talking to him when he was at IMG at that point. Uh, and I and uh, what's his name? I'm not even. I forget his name. The guy, the guy who committed to three different places, ended up at Pitt. Uh, oh, Dior John. Dior. Yeah, Dior. Dior. So yeah, talking about Dior with Benny and seeing if he would come to Syracuse. So that's kind of a flashback. But uh, back then he was really, really quiet, kind of mild mannered. Even even in his first year at Syracuse, that was kind of the read on him. I mean, he wasn't. It was such a different situation. The team was old, uh, you know, when I when he was in his freshman year. They had a lot of guys in their last year, or if it hadn't been COVID, it would have been their last year because it was still everyone at that point had played through COVID. So everyone had an extra year of eligibility. He's the youngest guy or one of the youngest on the team and not playing a ton. So for a lot of factors, I, you know, I think he was a lot quieter, but the optimism was super high on him. I mean, he was a big deal recruit that they had picked up. It's one of their higher recruits, I think still over the last, uh, you know, five, maybe even 10 years. He was, he was definitely a, a highly touted player and, and seeing some of the stuff he did last year, I, I really, you know, I thought that this might be trending uh, in the right direction. I haven't been around it as much, obviously, you know, a lot of what's happened this year hasn't been done on the basketball court, it seems. So 
uh, who, you know, it's, it's hard to really gauge what it would be like if Benny was just playing basketball consistently. I also think he fell victim in his first year. Like he should have played more. Everyone knows he should have played more in his first year. And, and that was with him with, I believe that was the same year as Woody Newton, uh, a couple other guys. I think Woody Newton was one year before, or maybe one year before, before. but we were kind of in, we were in a stretch or Kadari might've been that year or he, maybe he was the year before. He he was right. Right. He was the year after Kadari, Quincy, Woody Newton all left. Because and that was, right. people weren't playing. That was the issue. Like the young guys weren't playing at all. And that's just not the era of college basketball anymore that, that we're in. You have to let the guys play pretty early on or they're going to leave. And and so Benny ended up staying. Uh, oh, I know it got pretty close uh, to him not staying. But uh, it, it looked like he was going to be a really, really big factor. We talk about the things they need right now, like shooting and some size and potential to rebound. I think Benny, in a perfect world, fills a lot of of those voids i mean the guy did shoot nearly 40 percent from three last year not in a huge sample but uh, it always looked like he was going to be a pretty solid shooter he's obviously athletic he's got you know pretty much as close to an nba body with that you know with his ability to get up and down the floor at six foot eight as you're going to have on this team but uh, you know, whether it's on the court or off the court, it just doesn't seem like things are clicking right now. I mean, I was really excited to see him. He played well against Tennessee in Hawaii, and then I didn't get to see him play again. So, uh, you know, it's it, it definitely seems like there's a lot going on from me purely speculating on the outside. But I, I still think, and maybe this is just me being, you know, in the brain of a couple of years ago, that if they can get this guy on the floor, there's a lot he can do for this team. But it's, you know... There's a lot of dynamics, I think, at work there, and and right now it's not favoring him playing much because he he should be playing more than 14 minutes a game. I mean, he he should be pushing for a starting role. Yeah, team, I mean, I mean, it kind of plays into to uh, Quadir. I, I mean, Quadir Copeland's taken his minutes. Like that's just what it is right now, um, because of how effective he is playing his role. And that was the take. You know, Jordan and uh, and other you know our other friend Austin Barrick. Uh, our other colleague were uh, were hosting the double overtime on Sunday after the game, and I joined them. We talked for a little bit about Benny, and I thought Austin put it as, as best you know, as best I, that I had heard it. Is I my question that I keep coming back to, uh, and Jordan, I know you're chomping at the bit waiting to jump in here. Is that like you know you think about every player on this Syracuse team is they have at least one thing that you could think of and be like, oh, this person does that well. Benny Williams. I don't like there's nothing I could think of being like, oh, Benny does this thing well. And the way he played on Sunday, what he did well was playing his role. And Austin's argument was, oh, that's a skill. And if that is a skill he can be consistent at, then that would make a huge difference for, for Syracuse moving forward. Right, Jordan? Yeah, yeah. It, what he did, the other, what he did the other day was he rebounded enough. And he scored around the basket, which is a skill. I mean, I, I I do agree. I made the take earlier this year that Benny Williams is objectively a better shooter than Justin Taylor. If you look at the percentages, especially last year, he did shoot 40% from three and hit a bunch of them in that Wake Forest ACC tournament game, even though Syracuse lost. But he just, Benny has fallen victim to a, a curse of not getting enough consistent playing time to actually develop as a player, in my opinion. You talk about the freshman year not really playing that much. His sophomore year, he would miss like one rebound in the first four minutes, and Beheim would yank him. Like, wh- how are you supposed to gain confidence when you're on the floor for four minutes and then you're sitting, you're cold, then you got to come back on the floor? And then this season, I honestly thought he was going to start at, at the beginning of the year, and obviously he was then suspended and 
you know, things have now they, they got a lineup that they kind of like to start with, with Justin Taylor and Chris Bell. So he hasn't found, I don't think he consistent enough minutes for him to actually develop with this team, because he, I, I do think he can bring size because other than Malik Brown, I, I think Malik Brown is the same, about the same height as, as Benny Williams and Malik Brown plays the five. Like this team is not other than Nahima cloud. You take Nahima cloud out of this, and you don't really play Munir Hima that much. They don't have a seven-footer other than Nahim McLeod and Munir Hima, and both of them don't play that much. So you disrespecting bring... Peter Carey? Okay. Really. <laughs> he's bringing uh, a lot Peter of he's Carey's, bringing a lot of energy on the bench. He's a glue guy. Peter Peter Carey Peter Carey is is not playing, but he's a, um, he, he, like he does throw down some good dunks in pregame though. Okay, congrats. <laughs> Sorry, yeah, I, don't, I don't know. I don't know what to tell you. I, I agree with Ben. I agree with Ben though. Like if Benny can get some consistent minutes and get into a rhythm, and the only way he's gonna do that is playing his role like he did against Oregon. It's being like a courier. Courier is not shooting threes left and right because he knows that's not his role. If Benny can understand his role and continue to kind of replicate those performances like he did against Oregon, he's gonna get more and more playing time. And that's when I think he can then expand his role to shooting, to to driving off off. To, to driving to the rim and, and all the stuff that he can bring to the floor. I think he's not only a victim of minutes, like you said, Jordan, I think he's also a victim of expectations a little bit, not just from expectations outside of him forced on him and what we all think he can be because he was, you know, as a four-star in high school, you know, you're still putting a lot of expectations on a kid who was good in high school coming in here to continue that. I think it's also the expectation that, I'm not going to put words in his mouth, but he in his mind probably has an expectation of him of himself that he's the seventh best recruit in Syracuse history, according to 247sports.com, yep. which does not go back to Carmelo Anthony. But since like 2003, he's the seventh best recruit that Syracuse has gotten. At one point, you would think being that kind of guy, especially within there's a large window of time where he is and the best guy. Can you list the six guys ahead of him? I'm curious the who the six guys, guys ahead of him are. Andre Blash in 2005. Who never Paul came Harris. to who never came to Syracuse. Yeah. He went, he went yeah. straight to the NBA. <laughs> he went straight to the league to the Nets. Paul Harris in 2006. Fab Mello in 2010. Dewan Coleman in 2012. Chris McCullough in 2014. And Rakeem Christmas in 2011. I, and Donnie Freeman I, is one spot later. Yes, so Donnie Freeman, so, the freshman coming next year is one spot later. Something, I mean... If you're a longtime Syracuse fan, like I can, I can say that I am. Hearing the guys on that list, I can tell you, Fab Miller played one year, McCullough played one year, Paul Harris had a very up and down career. I mean, Christmas is the most consistent player on that on that list by far. Yeah. Um, so he's ahead of he's ahead of Tyler Ennis, Dion Waiters, and Michael Carter Williams. It's like too. not even mentioning like Johnny Flynn. Or, or, oh yeah, it's like. You're like you're leaving like Tyus Battle, um, CJ Fair, right? You're like yeah. a lot of you know, the Syracuse players you think of for the past Charge. 15 years that kind of define the program are not ahead of Benny Williams on that list. No, and exactly. So, so yeah, going think, back to your point, and it, it, you would think in that way, then then he he would want to be that kind of superstar, the guy that they rely on, and now he's scrapping for minutes in his junior year. I, that's got to have some kind of mental weight on him for sure. And uh, obviously we've seen like not great situations with him, with him being suspended at the beginning of the year or, you know, during that Cornell game, Ethan and I saw that where he was just kind of completely separated from the team and watching the hot dog race on the court. Like he's got other things on his mind. I think the expectations on him are just maybe a little bit too heavy for him 
coupled with the minutes where he just didn't have time to develop into those expectations. It's a bad situation for Benny Williams. I think with a little more leniency and now knowing his role, I think that'll go a long way for him to play consistent minutes and be a consistent guy and crack into that rotation of seven or eight that Autry's putting out there. If he cracks into that rotation, that's all that matters for him at this point is getting in there, getting consistent minutes, and filling his role. He's no longer going to be that superstar that we thought he could be, but if he fills that role, it would go a long way for him to being more of a part of this team and more in the conversation than we put in. I'd have to guess, too, that that Red has presented to him some opportunity or did before the season that he's going to factor into this team. I mean, uh, you know, uh, money aside, he could have went and got more minutes at, at plenty of different schools if he wanted to. Like, this is still a, a you know, a former highly tethered recruit who played in the ACC for a couple of years. There are plenty of schools that Betty could have gone to and started for sure and played 25 minutes for sure uh, and and still had, you know, as good of a chance or close to as good of a chance to to make some sort of professional career out of this if that's what he desires to do uh whether it's you know overseas or, or somewhere else but uh so you have to think that there is a pathway for him to to get involved here because I, i'm shocked that he's still at syracuse frankly with how he and jim Beheim interacted with each other over the two years and they hired within jim Beheim's you know coaching staff like they brought a, a guy right in there so you have to imagine that Red clearly made it clear that he has a different opinion because those expectations, like you'd mentioned, Hudson, I mean, we watched them in his freshman year really, really like break down, frankly. And the fact that it kind of like you're saying now where, he, you know, he doesn't get a rebound and he gets yanked. It was he'd come and he missed two shots and he was out of the game and, until there was 10 minutes left in the game. He'd come in, he'd make another shot he'd or he'd make one shot. He'd finish the game with three points. He didn't score double digits until a Duke game late in the year where he finally was like attacking. He went up and under a guy, I think for a layup. And, and that was and because really, they were down what? 20 points six yeah, minutes into the game. Yeah. And, and part of it falls on everything around him. I mean, they were supposed to be good and it was right near the end of Jim Beheim's career. He, you know, speculation again, he didn't really care about developing guys right at the end of his career. He was trying to win as many games as possible. And if he didn't feel that the young guys were going to do that, then he wasn't going to give them time to develop. He already, you know, ran a 50 year program that, that, that never played more than like eight guys in the rotation any single year. So he he didn't have, you know, a lot of opportunity. They didn't blow out enough teams. Like if you're, if you have young guys and you blow teams out, you can play them a little bit more, but they lost too many games by five points and won too many games by five points. Uh, well, they didn't win that many games, but they won a couple of games by five points and just, just never really, it, it just didn't work out. I think, you know, he's certainly in control of a lot of what's gone on with him. But I don't think he was dealt a phenomenal hand either. And and that's come together to turn what was, you know, like you said, the seventh best by by 24-7, which is kind of like a in the internet era or or in the last 20 years best rankings. Um, but still, like that's a really highly rated recruit. And it is shocking to see him barely in the rotation uh for the Syracuse team a couple of years later, now that he's an upperclassman. I think that's a, a perfect way to to put a bow on on Benny, uh, and you know we'll see what happens moving forward. Um, I, I think well, Benny he is can... from Bowie. 
I think I Bowie, think, isn't it Bowie? I'm kidding. I think Bowie? it's Bowie. I think it's Bowie. Oh, I believe it's it Bowie. Bowie. You're I mean, close, it's been total swinging, total swinging. We've been we've been on here for like almost forty minutes, and you know, I've only been able to mention Quadir offhand a couple of times, <laughs> so we have to get into it. You know, everyone's been giving me a really hard time about this, Ben. But since before the season, I've found some evidence from last season talking about how high I was on Quadir. That you know, I was here on the ground. I I unleashed this new thing uh, over the weekend. I'm calling it the DTS, uh, the Diesel Take Shop. Um, and, you know, the Diesel Take Shop is, uh, you know, Quadir Copeland is our, our prized asset at the moment. Uh, this take is our, our prized take at the moment. Um, and, you know, everyone's been giving me a hard time. You know, you're you're too effusive. You're never critical. I've owned up, you know, when he was not playing well in Hawaii, I owned up. I said he was not playing well in Hawaii. He did not play very well. Um, in those early minutes against Cornell when he, I think he turned the ball over four or five times in the first half, but when it's good, it is really, really good. And Jordan, you talked about him playing his role. I think that's something Benny can look at his teammate and say, wow, this guy is really good at playing his role. He's a dynamic athlete, just like I am. I need to start doing that too. Ben, I got, I have to ask you this because the, if it's the diesel take shop is open, we got to bring out the additional take he put on top of the quid earth part he said on the double overtime on sunday that quadir is the team mvp right now over judah mince i can't agree with that i'm gonna gonna have to the guy scoring you know nearly 20 points per game on a pretty good percentage too i i'm gonna say is the team mvp but if you want to do like the i don't know it can't be comeback My, my argument my argument for him being the most important player on the team Okay. Is that the things he is bet the things he does are don't always show up on the stat sheet, and that he he's I think he's the best defender on the team and not in terms I know Malik Brown leads the team in steals, um, and Naheem McLeod leads the team in blocks, but in terms of just defending, he can defend one through four because of his size and his length, because of his defensive intensity along with his playmaking, and he is no doubt about it. I I will not stand for an argument that anyone pushes the pace and gets in transition better than he does with this offense. He will grab the ball and go or find someone up ahead and throw a terrific outlet pass. Um, And it is is very clear at this point that when Syracuse is in transition, they're a very good transition offense. Uh, I, I don't think, I don't think that's an, like, I think that is, objective i don't think it's subjective i think the things he does well contribute most to winning and that is why i i gave the take i did no i get it i mean i i think there's a, a ton a ton to like about what what copeland's been doing this year uh when you, when you can get a guard frankly that's that's efficient like that shooting wise uh, obviously he's not putting them up from deep but recognizing that and and still being able to score when guys know that you're not really going to pull up, uh, I think is a skill. I think he's got some nice moves. I don't know if this was like a diesel burner, but I saw a random tweet uh, that was that was comparing Quadir Copeland to Rajon Rondo, which no, I don't know. it was not me. That was not I, no, I do not have a burner. Actually, actually, because of his size, I've sometimes likened him to Ben Simmons because he doesn't which- really shoot well. But he gets to the he gets to the hoop, dishes out, gets Three, rebounds, all like, that stuff. Yeah. Both of those are, I have to say, incredibly lofty comparisons for a guy who comes off the bench for a middle of the back yeah. ACC team. But uh, there is, I think, there's a ton to like in his game. He does like he he's got 
good moves inside to create a shot when he needs to. Uh, you know, Judah's going to grab the ball and run down the floor quickly a lot of the time, but I, I think we all kind of know what's going to happen when he does that. He's just so good. It doesn't matter. Whereas, uh, like you said, Diesel, I, you know, I think that Quadir can really distribute it a little bit more. Not to mention he's like, uh, not pound for pound, because this isn't fighting, but like per minute, uh, the the most prolific rebounder on the team, which is is both good and bad, uh, I think for for Syracuse. But uh, he ends up with nearly six rebounds per game and and plays under twenty minutes per game. So uh, especially he's obviously been really really good in the last couple. And I think that uh, for an offense that occasionally when it gets it gets stuck looks like it's working really really hard to get the the shots it wants. I I think that he both by himself and through the way he distributes can get them some easier looks. Uh, and, th- and that helps them because that gets you out of ruts. I mean, stopping runs and, and staying out of big, big ruts is, is arguably the most important thing in basketball. And so I, I think he plays a huge part in that. Ethan, I don't fully disagree with you too, in terms of oh, the most important thank you. player. Thank in ter- you. Now, hold on. There's a big caveat to this in terms of the most important player. If you look at each player on their baseline and what you expect from them, because you expect what Judah Mintz is doing, you expect that from him. There are guys that are setting the bar higher than their expectations. Quadir Copeland is one of those guys. I would say arguably setting the bar higher than his expectation the most. So based on a baseline of what we expect from these guys and overachieving, I would say him having a good game is more important than uh, this is going to be a little bit hot, but then Judah having a good game because Judah is consistently going to have these pretty Ooh. good games. Now he's going to have a stinker like against UVA with I think four or five. And Notice they lost that game by 20 though. <laughs> exactly. True. This is true. But if Quadir has good games, it really does elevate the team a lot. That's clear. I mean, Oregon, obviously they're missing their two big, their two big men. An Oregon without Infali Dante is not the same Oregon, and they did crush them. However, Quadir adding that spark plug to the team really kind of not fully changed the dynamic of the game because that was Kyle Cuff and Benny Williams, but really increased Syracuse's dynamic throughout that game. I, in my take factory, my take shop, I I still have Malik Brown as my best take so far, so I'm not willing to relinquish that. Okay. However... I, I will defend Ethan here a little bit where if Quadir is going, this team becomes a completely different monster than what they usually are. Yeah. I mean, we could we could talk about this for like 20 minutes because it just depends totally on how you could. define. We, we, we could talk about it this just forever. depends <laughs> on how you define most important player. Like Judah, we're used to it now, so it's not as shocking. But if you take Judah off the floor and let this team go, and you take Quadir off the floor, and which which of those teams would play better? Objectively, I think when Judah's on the floor, they would play better. But um, they're both they're both important to the team overall. Um, and you know, you talk about that Malik take. By the way, I was on I was on the Malik train all last yep. year when I you got. Guys on the were on you guys were on it. Yeah, you I guys were on it. Yeah, you guys were on it. He helped me in English. I'll never forget that. <laughs> oh, there you go. My guy. Shout out. Cole, Malik. I, I sat next to Cole Swider in presentational speaking. Nice. Okay. <laughs> Um, one more basketball thing for you, Ben, before, before we, we close things up, um, watching Judah, he's really kind of the, we we've talked, we've hit on him. Like when talking about other people, we haven't actually talked about him, I guess in the ACC era, I would put him and Tyus kind of on a pedestal 
because they both played multiple years. They both developed into these prolific scores, guys that could potentially play in the NBA. Like I want to put Tyler Ennis and I want to put Malachi Richardson on, on that same level, but they only played one year before they went to the and Malachi Malachi's like tournament yeah. run, I think yeah. makes it, his year look a lot better. Right. I feel like him, Tyus and, and Judah are pretty similar in their arcs and, and like where they stand in terms of how big of an offensive burden they have. So you were, you were a freshman for Tyus's last season at Syracuse, right? Um, I was a freshman. Yes. For his last. So like, I, how does watching Judah compared to watching Tyus? Like, what is that? I, cause I see it as kind of, you know, this heavy, heavy burden to create offense. Um, and then I think Tyus averaged 18 or 19 points a game, both his sophomore and junior years. And now Judah's at near 20, his, his sophomore year. Do you see that kind of comparison? Like, does it, does it make sense? Yeah, I think so. I, I think I think that there's there's some big comparables and some big differences. Like there, you know, there was no doubt in Tyus's final year there, and, and even a lot the year before, uh, but definitely in his final year there that he was controlling a lot of the offense. Um, that late in the game, especially, he was going to get the ball a lot. They needed him to start and stop runs a ton, and that team was great in transition. Now they were playing a zone. Frank Howard was creating a lot of steals because he had crazy long arms at point guard. And there was, you know, it's a very different dynamic of a team, even though it's not that long ago. Um, I, I think the the differences, you know, Tyus was I, like Judah is so downhill toward the rim. I think Tyus had a little bit more mid range in his game, which it was a little bit you know, like Tyus wanted to be Kobe Bryant. He wore 25 because Jordan wore 23 and Kobe wore 24 and he wore 25. He he constantly talked about Kobe. He only wore Kobe's um and and was essentially trying to be Kobe Bryant and was doing a pretty good job at it frankly as you know see his game winner versus Georgetown probably my favorite moment still in four years uh that I saw there but that team I think had a little bit more creation from other spots uh you know Elijah Hughes was on that team he wasn't fully the Elijah Hughes he turned into the following year but he was very good. O'Shea Brissett, obviously still in the NBA and was uh, was definitely a very solid player for them. Ben, to mention, ben to mention a Canadian player hits. Uh, there we he, go. Well, you mentioned Tyler Ennis before I said anything. Well, I, I didn't, I didn't even fight back that's that he true. could be in that group. Uh, but um, yeah, I was, I mean, I got, I got the flag right up there. <laughs> but um, yeah, you know, O'Shea Brissett was a big part of that team. And and even people forget uh freshman buddy was actually played, I think, a little bit more than than people remember. He was he was a part of that team and, and shot a lot of threes and it was kind of a big deal. So I think they had a, a little bit more diversity of offense going on, especially taking guys off the dribble, like Hughes would do it and Brissett would do it. Whereas it does feel to me like Judah is so, so in control of this offense at all times, frankly, and, and pretty much everything runs through him. But uh, it, it is a similar dynamic. It didn't work out great for Syracuse. I don't think that was Tyus's fault. But, uh, you know, if he didn't play well, they were in a lot of trouble. I don't think uh, it was Tyus's fault that Frank Howard uh, didn't play against Baylor. <laughs> no, no. Now that team started the year ranked uh, and ended up at, in and the beat 8 and beat, and beat Zion Williamson. And R.J. Barrett at Cameron Indoor, right? Yes, yes. Uh, Cam Reddish was hurt, I think. Uh, so that was luck. Right. Some luck. I think there, he was sick. We'll I think it. he was sick. I think he was like, sick, and maybe like. Um, and I think Trey Jones didn't play. Trey either. Jones uh, didn't play, but yeah. I mean, you take it. You absolutely. Yeah, they still take beat. It. it was the past. I mean, that was. I mean, we. I could get it. The this one. That was the Pascal Chukwu game. I think he had twenty oh. rebounds in that game. 
That's um, all. If I we had cake shop or whatever it's called when I was around, I was like, I spent half of the Ostroms in my first year on it, just yelling about them playing anyone but Chukwu at center and playing City. I I was a, I was a big City. Maybe new, hater, new, not personally. New segment. But. Maybe we should come up for every show. Uh, the uh, the OTF, the Ostrom Take Factory, where someone has to give an outlandish take, and the other guy the other guys come at them for it. Uh, this could be I loved develop developing story. We'll put more uh, R and D into into that, and, uh, and and we'll come back a little bit later. Um, I, I want to close things up, Ben. By uh, we asked Johnny last week. I'll ask you a different question. We asked Johnny last week about his favorite interviews from his time on the pod. And Ooh. he talked about interviewing lacrosse coaches because he, I, Johnny, oh, Johnny, I'm going to give you better answers than that. <laughs> yeah. I, I thought that was a bit of a cop-out answer uh, personally. Um, and I would not give the same answer, but I want to hear about your, your favorite, we'll do favorite Ostrom interviews, but also, you know, some, you know, you know, Johnny, you know, Johnny had some great travel, but you know, I would say, you know, my class and your class were lucky enough to have some oh, pretty yeah. some, Johnny some much, didn't have great travel. Yeah, much, Come much on. better travel than uh than Johnny did uh and Jordan or and Jordan might. Uh Hudson, you know, you skip a year, Hudson's gonna have some awesome travel when he's a senior. Um, so go go take, you know, I just asked like four questions in, in one oh, yeah. question. So, you know, just just go. <laughs> Uh, so I'll say my favorite, like there were a bunch of great guests and, and I apologize that a lot of them aren't going to pop into my mind, but the two that immediately come to mind with best guests were, um, Benny was one of the guys we talked to before he got here. We also talked to Enrique Cruz jr. When he committed, he's just an awesome guy. Like I, I, I'll root for that guy. No matter what, to the end of the world, he was hilarious uh his whole you know it's still up somewhere his whole interview is really really funny really charismatic a lot it's of guys on, when it's you, on youtube i found yeah, it the other day yeah yeah well a lot of guys when you get them in high school understandably you know they haven't talked to a lot of people on mics or or on video but he was really really into it so i love that and then uh there was oh what was the cause of the beef again it's so long ago but there was like that couple weeks where there was some open Jim Beheim, Jay Billis back and forth a little bit. And then we got Billis on the podcast uh, that week. And he taught and like, he didn't come on and, and slander Beheim Cause that's not what they either of them do anyway. They they're far too professional to do something like that, but um, they, it was like a hot moment in their relationship. And, and he came on and he told, he, you know, he's friends with Jim. He told some funny stories about him. And, and imagine, I imagine if, it. imagine if, imagine if he did come on the show and slander it though. And then you just see him all over him. social media. Jay Billis <laughs> goes on Syracuse, Syracuse <laughs> local podcast and slanders Jim Beheim. I would have loved it. <laughs> I would have then Manscaped would have answered my email. So uh, <laughs> awful announcing would have picked that up. <laughs> yeah, that would have been great. But those two, I think, uh, stick out to me the most. I mean, I always love, you know, there were lots of lots of local, uh, you know, or lo local guests in terms of like Waters and, and other great people in the Syracuse area. Or uh, we always had great people from Boston with BC coverage. I always I always love talking to them. But uh, oh, and I'll, I'll throw in a third. Uh, West Durham did a couple different things for us just because he works. Uh, in so many different areas, and so he's a really, really cool guest. I will and say then, the the Benny interview is still by a very wide margin the most viewed interview on the Ostrom Avenue podcast let's YouTube go. account. Let's uh, go. So I mean, not you know, I hope you guys pass it, but I'm hey, a little bit. Hey, we're we're getting there. Um, <laughs> but so you know, that's just a plug for the Ostrom Avenue podcast oh, yeah. YouTube account. But sorry then, to cut you off again. Travel, travel was the other part of the question, right? Best guests and best travel. I mean, the best travel we did. 
Well, actually, there's two. But the be- the best travel that I did, uh, WAER affiliated, certainly, was going to the Bahamas. Uh, we got to do uh, the battle for Atlantis, and the men and women were there at the same time. Did they go one in five combined? They might have. But uh, it was, I mean, to go... To go there, uh, you know, uh, this isn't like a PSA to enroll at Syracuse University, but it, but that would be pr- a pretty good one to, to be able to to go there, not on our dime uh, and get to stay at the hotel right outside of Atlantis where you still get to go on the slides. You just don't stay in the nice hotel. I was like broke from buying $80 meals because they only have those in the Bahamas. But um, that was great. The Super Bowl was awesome. At least ours wasn't full COVID. Like the year before, it was basically no people we went to la which was awesome except for when we had to drive on the highway to get there and uh and had a lot of fun so those two tie for like the most glamorous places but uh we had a really fun trip to virginia tech i won't talk about uh in detail on this podcast very fun uh, trip, uh, very I, fun I, trip I, so i tech. it's really funny you mentioned that because i'm was, sure that story has been passed down it's, quite, i, I was actually i was uh I, when I was flying back from South Dakota yesterday, I decided, you know, how am I going to kill time on this hour flight where like, there's no, that like, it, it's like, it's the middle of the afternoon and I don't really nap. And I just scrolled back through an old group chat and found, I, I, I believe Matt Bonaparte did a blog, like a vlog as he you did guys do were, a vlog. as yeah. you guys were driving back from that trip. And I stumbled across like three or four videos and I, you know, I won't talk about what was in the videos, but it was an incredible trip down memory. Please lane. send those to me. Please send I, those to me. They were um, incredible. Those are great. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, we can't talk about that because the station doesn't know. Uh, but uh, we ended up uh, we ended up having a very fun trip to Virginia Tech. We had what other good ones, uh, you know, going to getting to go to to Duke or getting to go, uh, you know, even call a lacrosse game at Duke. You know, I hadn't done a lot of lacrosse in my life before that. Do a lacrosse game in North Carolina. Uh, really, really awesome experiences. So there there were so many super fun trips that we did the, the nicest ones definitely were bahamas and and the super bowl but you know I, i'll i'll say virginia tech was the most enjoyable trip that i uh, i had in my college career that's awesome uh glad we continue able to to get the ostrom alums back on the show we had johnny now we had ben i think it's pretty clear where we're going next um let's we got, go you know, that the, so this would be five generations of ostrom we're going yes. back we're going back we're about to hit the original cast because I'm I technically wasn't original. I was the the first edition. So you're you're going to get there. So hopefully we're going to get there. Uh, we definitely have one more interview scheduled. We're going to see if we can get two more um, to to really, you know, in the spirit of holiday season and giving back. We're giving back to the listener with a trip down memory lane here on the Ostrom Avenue podcast. So, uh, Ben, thank you so much for your time. Uh, it's been great to 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 talk about Syracuse new and old and 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 hash things out. Yeah, been great to to be on once again. Good luck uh, going forward, and you guys are doing an awesome job with the podcast, so just keep it going. Well, thank you. As always, you can make sure to find us on uh, social media at Ostrom Avenue Pod and the Ostrom Avenue Podcast YouTube channel uh, at Ostrom Avenue Podcast. Check out all of W8ER's content on W8ER.org, us on social media at W8ER Sports, at W8ER Sports Talk, broadcasting Syracuse football, Syracuse men's basketball, a, a select number of Syracuse women's basketball games coming up in a little bit as well. It's an exciting time to be a part of W8ER and listening to all of our coverage. And thank you once again to Empire Hearing and Audiology for their support of the show. All right, for Jordan, Hudson, and Ben, I'm Ethan signing off. Thanks for tuning in. If you made it all the way to the end, you are a true hero. We love you here at the Ostrom Avenue Podcast, and we'll talk to you soon. Hey.